If you would, take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, we will come to it later in the sermon, but so that you're prepared. Last Sunday we began sort of a series within our series of meditations, a series on the Trinity. And to review briefly, we saw what the Trinity is not. It's not three gods, it's not tritheism. It's not three aspects, uh, modalism. And it is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction to say that God is uh, one God and three persons. If we were to say that God is one person and God is three persons, then that would be a contradiction. But the way in which he is one is not the same way in which he is three. He is one in name and nature. He is three in persons. As we said last week, without question, this is hard, this is difficult for us to understand. But at the very least, we should recognize that it is not a contradiction. Secondly, we saw that the Trinity is found throughout Scripture, that is, in both the Old Testament and New Testament. We would accept that the Trinity is found in the New Testament, but not so sure we'd wonder about the Old Testament. But as we saw, the Old, the Old Testament shows, reveals to us the Trinity. We have the conversation at the creation of man. Let us make man in our image. And then we have the various appearances to Abraham, to Manoah, to Jacob, and more. While we would say, yeah, we're clear that the Trinity is explained or expressed in the New Testament, um, it's much more than a simple case of three persons being mentioned such as in the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just, just a reminder, um, it's not in the names of, it's in the name of God, who is Father, who is Son, and who is Holy Spirit. And then our benediction at the end of our service is Trinitarian as well. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But we should also recognize and embrace the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, as well as the divinity of the Spirit and the personhood of the Spirit. At the end of our meditation, I mentioned that the doctrine of the Trinity is the basic grammar of Christian faith and life. And we need to recognize that bad grammar lives, leads to bad thinking and bad thinking often leads to bad living. So, let's look at several things today, uh, fuel for meditation. The first is the Trinitarian grammar. The doctrine of the Trinity is a rule. It is, in fact, it shows us how to apply the language of the three and one God, Trinitarian God, in ways that faithfully bear witness to the fact that God's work is revealed in us as well as in creation. And here I want to review what we saw in the series several years ago on creation. That if we have a good Trinitarian grammar, it sustains and guides a Christian doctrine of creation. So we saw, and I mentioned a moment ago, there's a conversation regarding the creation of man. Let us make man in our image. Now, if we in fact are mistaken, if our grammar is off when it comes to the matter of creation it will, in fact, lead to a really tragic misunderstanding of God's purpose in creation. If we fail to be Trinitarian in 
our doctrine of creation, we will fall into all kinds of errors. And let me just give you some examples. So if, in fact, we say that God is Father and Son, but not Spirit, consider what it does to the Christian doctrine of creation. This means we have a grammar in which the Father initiates the work of creation and the Son implements the work of creation. And this fills what what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. But there is no Spirit, there is no Holy Spirit to complete it and to sustain it. If we only believe in the Father and the Son, God plans creation, he brings it into being, but he has no relationship with it. He is far away. Jesus came for a period of time, but he's gone now, and there is no spirit. And so we have basically creation in which God is not present, and we do not have a relationship with him. By the way, if there is no spirit, then we can't actually have Jesus, because the incarnation is made possible when the spirit comes upon Mary and she is with child. And when we do this, by the way, creation simply becomes nature. And God's work in creation, I think, is impoverished. It is not what we find in Scripture. God's work is seen more as a rescue mission rather than his continuing interaction with his creation. We would see a world that is only marked by death, by the fall, by sin. And I would also say, if, this, if we only hold to the Father and the Son, then we do not see a world of beauty. We do not see a world of beauty. We will have a disengaged creator, and then a redeemer who intervenes to sort of get us out of this mess. But as I said, that's not possible because the Spirit is the one who causes Mary to be with child. Um, what we have basically is a God who has abandoned his world. Those who take this point of view, and there are those who do that, basically take a very utilitarian view to life. There's no beauty in creation. It's only seen for its usefulness. We don't see it as God's creation. We simply see it as nature, as material for us to use in whatever endeavors we may want to engage in. We must have the Spirit. It must be Father, Son, and Spirit in creation. Well, what if we say that there is Father and there is Spirit, but there is no Son? You know, it is the work of Jesus that makes it plain to us, in case we had missed the point, of the fallenness of the world. And we would also miss, I think, the beauty of it and the value of it. It is Jesus came and died to redeem us out of sin, So now hopefully that's clear, but also to redeem his creation because it has value. He gave his life for us and for his creation. If we only see the Father and the Spirit, um, then the Spirit becomes that which sort of opens our eyes to see the wonder of creation, but we fail to see the fallenness of it. It is Jesus who shows us that things are in dire need of redemption, and thus he gave his life. If we do not, if we have Father and Spirit, but not the Son, then the gospel is not that the world is broken and now Jesus has come to reclaim it and to redeem it. Um, 
Yeah, it's just that the world is really sort of a nice place. What if we say there is no Father and there is no Son, only Spirit? And this sounds very much like what we just saw. But those who, in fact, neglect the role of the Spirit in creation have a very mechanical view of reality. But others have gone to the other extreme and see that it is only the Spirit, that God is only Spirit, not Father and Son. And so what we find is that God is a singularity, solitary, without relationship and without love, until he creates the world, that somehow God is lonely as Spirit, and so he creates something quite different from himself, something that in fact is material. Now this is where the, very no, the various Gnostic heresies come in and they say material is bad because God is spirit and only spirit is good. Uh, well, yes, if you don't believe in the incarnation, then in fact only spirit is good. This is, another for, uh, this is a form of Unitarianism which became quite popular in this country at the end of the 18th century, 19th century. Um, uh, another form is that there's only Father. But one form is that there's only spirit. Not trinity, but just simply one person. What if you have only father, no son, no spirit? So here you have the father who creates the world, who sets the rules for its life, and then he lets it go its own merry way. Directed by the rules, he's given us rules, he's given us commandments. Um... It's sort of interesting, how did he do that if in fact God is not spirit and God is not flesh? So, there is a place for Jesus in this, in this scenario. Um, he's not God, he's not divine with the Father, but he's sort of a human being who lived a good life. He's an example for us and this is how we are supposed to live. Some would say that in this view that Jesus did create the world but that's because God created the Father created him and then he created the world Um, sin in this point of view is simply ignorance there's no fall we simply are ignorant of how we are supposed to live and Jesus tells us live the way that I did well what about the spirit well, the spirit is sort of that afterglow. You know, if you do the right thing and if you follow the path of Jesus, you sort of have this warm, fuzzy feeling that some people might call the spirit. Yeah. What if you say there is no father, there is no spirit, only son? I think that this is a far more dangerous problem for us than we, we care to admit. Because in fact... We are grateful for the gift of God's Son. It is the Lord Jesus who has told us all these things. But he doesn't stand alone. But there are those, particularly those who are committed to a life of discipleship, following Jesus, that they become so single-minded in their focus that they forget, in fact, that God is three in one, that it isn't simply the person of Jesus. And then the Father and the Spirit are are just pushed aside. The result is the world is seen as evil. We've been trapped here. The Creator is not good. In the Gnostic systems, there was actually another God who created the world. 
Um, the Son, Jesus, we can't call him the Son because there's no Father. Jesus tells us how to live so that we can escape from this world. Jesus then is not simply, he's not really human. He's sort of a spiritual being who has somehow descended upon us and given us insight into how we are supposed to live. Another way of looking at this, and this again I think is a great danger for Orthodox Christians, is that we see creation as merely a stage, that this is a testing ground, that God put us here to teach us and to test us, um, and we have a model, that's Jesus, and we are supposed to follow him. Um, No. This is God's good creation. Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in the act of creation. It is the Spirit who sustains God's creation even now. If we take away any of these members of the Trinity, we will have a bad grammar, and the result is a bad view, a bad understanding of creation. We need to have a good Trinitarian grammar, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's the good grammar, something to think about. A second thing for you to consider is Trinitarian prayer. What is prayer? We've talked about this over the years. Living when and where we do, there's a strong temptation to view, to view prayer as a means to an end. We want something. We had the time for prayer when we spoke of things we want remembered, and so prayer is seen as a means to an end. Or a way to get yourself improved, an improvement of one's well-being. Um, and in this sense, prayer can become very self-centered. Um, not necessarily, but it, but it ends up being all about me. Uh, Craig Gay, in a book called, and we went through this years ago, um, The Way of the Modern World, or Why It's Tempting to Live as If God Doesn't Exist, wrote, Real prayer is a dialogue. It discloses a genuinely personal relation. And then at the end of his book, in the concluding chapter, he writes, Prayer is perhaps the church's most single witness to the living God. The most sing- single most important witness to the living God. So, we need to have good grammar to understand God's work in the world. And we need to have a Trinitarian view of prayer if in fact we are to have the, most single, the single most important witness to our world. Getting back to the matter of prayer as dialogue, it might seem fairly clear, as in it goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway. Um, Prayer is, in fact, talking to God. It's talking to God. As simple as this definition is, it is somewhat dangerous because it raises a whole host of questions, and perhaps it boils down to one single question, does it make sense for us to pray? I think it's a question we've asked ourselves at different times. What we find in scripture indicates that it in fact does make sense to pray. We can make the argument this way. Persons talk to one another. Secondly, God is a person and we are persons. So thirdly, God talks to us and we respond to him in prayer. I would say prayer is a uniquely human activity. In the Psalms, we read of the heavens rejoicing and the hills clapping their hands. Um, But 
technically speaking, this is not prayer. Um, only humans who are made in the image of God pray. We respond in prayer. Where do we start with this whole business? Well, at the beginning. In a conversation, somebody has to start. Somebody has to begin the conversation. You can't both start at the same time. So who spoke first? If prayer is a dialogue with God, who spoke first? This is, and we've talked about, this is the critical question. It affects how we will view all things. It is God who speaks first. And we hear him speaking in creation. Let there be light, for example. Why does God speak? Because God is a speaking. He is a conversing God. And then when man is made, we hear, in fact, we might have been tempted to think it's just a, a one, one being speaking, but now we have a conversation. Let us make man in our image. This conversation is consistent with a Christian view of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have a conversation. And I would argue it is an ongoing conversation. It's not like you have eternity of silence and then suddenly somebody says, let us make man in our image. It is an ongoing conversation. And we who are made in God's image do not somehow break into a silent world of eternity. There is, in fact, conversation going on between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I know it's hard for us to grasp, to get our minds around, but God is a conversing God. And he doesn't just talk to us as though somehow we're the center of all things. The reason God talks to us is because God is a talking God. Between the Trinity, there have been eternal conversations going on. And then God, in his grace, speaks to us, either through our circumstances, through his word, through one another, and then we respond in prayer. A Trinitarian view of prayer sees us as entering into a dialogue with a Trinitarian God, with a triune God, who has been talking all along. Somehow we may imagine God as being on the other end of the phone, silently waiting for us to, to begin a conversation, and he will respond, No, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been talking. They have spoken to us, and we are to respond in prayer. Our prayers do not break a silence, though oftentimes we think that way. So real prayer is a dialogue that discloses a genuinely personal relation between God and his children, between God as Trinity and his children. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. At this point, some may be wondering or may be thinking, well, you know, this is all well and good. This is really Christian-y stuff you've got here for us today, Damon. Um, I was just imagining, supposing that you go to work tomorrow, you talk to a neighbor, and they say, so what did you do yesterday? What did you do on Sunday? And you say, well, I went to church. And they ask, so what did you guys do there? And you say, well, we sang some hymns. We heard the Bible read. Uh, we prayed. We had communion. And we heard a sermon. Oh, really, what was the sermon about? Uh, the Trinity. Oh, that's really Christian-y stuff. That's, you know, theological stuff. Um, 
And you might think, well, yeah, I was in church with other Christians and Damon spoke, so it kind of makes sense that it was Christian-y. I want at this point to challenge that thinking. You see, Trinity is not only the basic grammar of Christian faith and life. It is the grammar of all life and all reality. So the third thing that I would give to you, fuel for meditation, is the one and the many. Unity and diversity. The one and the many is perhaps the basic question of philosophy. Um, What is the basic fact of life? Is it unity or is it plurality? Okay. Is it is ultimate truth about the one or is it about the many? If unity is the is the reality, it is the basic nature of reality, then oneness and unity must gain priority over individuals, over particulars, over the many. But if plurality is or if it describes basic or ultimate reality, then the unit cannot gain priority over it. So the question is, which has priority in this reality? The one or the many? Is it unity or is it diversity? If it is, in fact, the one, okay, well, what does that mean? How How do we view things? If it's the many, how do we see it? Because you have certain institutions like the church, the state, society. Are they the one? Or do we have individuals? Are the individuals more important so that, in fact, the believer in the church has priority, the citizen in the state has priority, or the person in society has priority? If the one is ultimate, then individuals are sacrificed to the group. If the many is ultimate that unity is sacrificed to the will of the many and anarchy is the result. By the way, one of the early mottos supposedly still is of the Republic is e pluribus unum out of many, one. The grammar for our reality is the Trinity. God who is one, God who is three. Unity, diversity, one and the many. One of the things that people miss is that there is, in fact, a distinction between uncreated reality, that is God, God is not created, and created reality, and that's everything else. Simply, they speak of being, so that God shares being with us and we share being with him. Um, This is completely wrong. God is uncreated being, and he has created what we know as reality. And this reality can only be understood properly if we look at God as he is. That is one and three. One writer put it this way. Using the language of the one and many question, we contend that in God the one and many are equally ultimate. Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. In other words, God is both one and many, one and three, unity and diversity. And that describes reality. But if we have rejected God, if we've gone our own way, we tend to choose one over the other, 
either the rights of the individual or the rights of the state, for example. And how do, we, how do we reconcile this? How do we figure this out? We need the grammar of the Trinity, in which you have both at the same time, that God is both one and God is three. This is what we are supposed to demonstrate as Christians in our lives. I fear that we don't, that we tend to go to either one or we go to the other, but we are to demonstrate in a congregation, in a church, which is one, that we are members, maybe not many, but more than one, we are members and both are equally important. The one congregation and the many members. Now we come to our text, because this is a problem that Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with a church that's really gone off the tracks. And as human beings tend to do, we go to one extreme or over the other or the other. And in in the case of the Corinthians, they had come to the conclusion that there was one important gift, and that was speaking in tongues. So in chapter twelve of First Corinthians, Paul tries to unpack this to show, interestingly enough, that there's diversity. Um, they were okay with the unity thing, the one gift. And he had to explain to them, no, no, in fact, we have both at the same time. His argument is in three parts. The first part is based on the Trinity in verses 4 through 11. The second is based on the analogy of the body, that you have one body, but it has different parts. And then finally, he sort of summarizes it and then points in the direction of what should undergird all of this, and that is love. Look, if you would, as I read verses 4 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all of them, who works all of them in all men. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still, to still another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So here is, in fact, the foundation. This is, if you wish, the the Trinitarian grammar. Different kinds of gifts, same spirit. Different kinds of service, the same Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. Different kinds of workings, the same God, that is God the Father. The focus here is not on the different kinds, okay, but rather on the sameness. That is, the Corinthians seem so focused on tongues that Paul has to sort of like hate. There are other manifestations of the work of the Spirit, but they come from the same Spirit. There is unity, the same Spirit, but there's also diversity. One God, three persons. This defines our reality. God is not simply marked by unity or uniformity, but also by diversity. I think what Paul is trying to say to these Corinthians who have gone off rails is that there is 
when you look at God, one God, three persons, there is to be a unity and there is also to be diversity. Verses 7 and 11 basically are bookends because they say the same thing. Verses 8, 9, and 10 give us examples. Um, and what Paul is saying here are three, th- you know, three things. That each one, there's diversity. Manifestations, it's a disclosure of the Spirit's work in their midst, but it's for the common good. And here he's anticipating what he will write later in this letter. I think one of the problems that the Corinthians had was they only looked for visible manifestations of supernatural power. If you look at the list of things that he mentions here, the different gifts, we don't find these gifts elsewhere. So when Paul writes to the Romans, he talks about serving and encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, showing mercy, teaching leadership. It's not miraculous signs and healings and all these other things. That's what the Corinthians were into. Uh, If I read the Corinthians right, I I think that they thought these are the manifestations of the Spirit. And Paul says, no, no. There is to be a unity. There is diversity. But what about the body? Look at verses 12 through 26. Uh, I'll read it in a bit. But he uses the analogy of the body to to illustrate the nature of the church. Okay. Verses 12, 13, and 14. The body is a unit. There it is, single. Though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the same, or given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Paul does an A, B, B, A here. He, what he says at the beginning, he says at the end that the body is a unit, one body. And in between, he talks about the fact that there are many parts and many members. Verse 13 shows how we became one. We were baptized by this, we're baptized into the Spirit. Okay? We are the children of God. We are now a part of God's one family. Okay? We are one body. But then there's diversity. Look at verses 15 to 20. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, be for that reason, or it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. It is the unity and diversity that we find in the Trinity. Paul personifies different parts of the body. You know, you have the the foot speaking or the hand speaking, the eye, the ear. Um, You'll notice that two of them are extremities. That is, the foot and the hand. And two of them are sensory organs. That is, in fact, the eye and the ear. If they think, well, I don't do what that part of the body does, therefore I am not part of the body, then, in fact, I think they have missed the vote. There have to be differences 
and different functions. Now unity, verses 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is the unity that Paul is pushing for. Not what the Corinthians were. We all got to speak in tongues. We've got to be one. We've got to do this one thing. And Paul says, no, that is not the unity that we find in the Trinity. In the previous section, we have different parts of the body saying, well, I'm not part of the body because I'm not like the others. In this section... Some are saying that part, certain parts of the body are not necessary. Um, we don't need them. And if you make the analogy, in the congregation there would be those who are really, really important and those who aren't so important and we don't really need them. And again, personifying parts of the body, Paul says basically, let's think about this. The weaker parts of the body are in fact indispensable. What are the weaker parts of your body? I would say your vital organs, your lungs, your heart. That's why you need a rib cage. Because otherwise someone could just sort of poke you and kill you. Or your brain is covered by a skull to protect it. Because it is, in fact, a weaker part of your body. Well, do we say, well, because the brain is so delicate, it's really not that important. It's not that we can do without it. Well, we know better than that. We know better than that. And then there are parts that we cover up with special modesty. And here I think he's speaking of uh, sexual organs um, that are necessary for reproduction. But they are covered up with a special modesty. We don't say, well, these, these really aren't that important. Um, God made us the way that he did to demonstrate and to illustrate the reality of the Trinity. One body, many parts. And Paul now is beginning to drift um, in verse 26 toward the analogy with the church that if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. If you've ever had a serious toothache, you know the truth of this. Okay? Or if you've ever stubbed your toe, you know the truth of this. That even though the pain is there, the whole body, somehow you go into kind of a shock. You can't function because part of the body is hurting. So now, the church, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those who are able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Paul makes the application here. The church is, in fact, the body of Christ. 
It is the body of Christ. And it has different parts. And the different parts have different functions, different manifestations. Paul asks a series of questions to which the answer is no. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? All these different things? Of course not. You can't have a church made up of all pastors, if you wish. Okay? You can't have a church made up where everyone has the same gift, the same manifestation. The church is to be made up of diversity. And when you bring it all together, the strong parts, the weak parts, the parts maybe of less honor, when you bring this all together, this is the body of Christ. And this is an illustration. It is a living example of the triune God. God is one. God is three. We are the people of God, one. Individually, we are Christians. That's the many. So the grammar, or the Trinity, is the grammar for Christian life, but also for all of life. And now we have been called out of the world to become God's people, and we are to live it out. We are to demonstrate to the world, hey, folks, you've got bad grammar. You're either focusing on the diversity or you're focusing on the unity, when in fact God is both. And we as God's people are to live that out to the world. I don't, I'm not sure we've been doing that. Because I'm not sure we've had good grammar about the Trinity. We think of God as a singularity. Or, sometimes I think we, we drift into tritheism. We think of three gods. No, God is one and God is three. In the same way that the church is one body, the body of Christ has many members. In the same way that God made us as human beings, we have one body. I don't have two bodies. There are times I wish I could clone myself and get twice as much done, but no. One body has different parts. I have two hands, I have two feet, two ears, and so on. This is a living illustration of the reality of God. What is the, the, under thing, the underlying, what is the foundation of this all? It's the next chapter of 1 Corinthians. And if you know 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 is on love. So this isn't simply a mathematical formula, one and many. It's not a philosophical discussion alone. It is the reality that God in love created us. He sustains us. And we are to be motivated. We are to be driven, if you wish, by love. So the Trinity is the grammar of the Christian life. It is the grammar of reality, of everyday life. And we are to live that out in our lives day by day, by God's grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we tend to want to make things manageable. Or we just jettison them into sort of this stratosphere of mystery. And when it comes to the reality that you are one and three, we cannot begin to fully comprehend it. We never will. But you have told us, and we see it, that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we see that, 
then we can see that in fact that's the way you made us as human beings and that's the way you've made the church it's in fact the way you've made all of society where you have one neighborhood but many neighbors one nation but many citizens but people have turned away from you they don't have the right grammar and so they go astray by your grace you have by your spirit enabled us to see the truth we now understand right grammar may we live it out in our lives as individuals the many but in our life as a congregation the one may we be a living demonstration of who you are And as Craig Gay said, may we come to see that prayer is the most important witness that we can share with the world. That we are in conversation with a conversing God. A God who's been talking all along. He's been speaking to us and now by your grace we respond in prayer. May we, in the days to come, think about these things, meditate on them, come to see the truth of them. And by your grace, may it change the way that we live. Thank you for bringing us together today. as we walk through the world in the coming days and may we have a sense that you're there with us you've already gone ahead and prepared the way pray for Ben and Becca as they travel you would give them safety for Gracie as she starts kindergarten for Nia as she celebrates her third birthday in all that we do may our thoughts be of you of your great love for us may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.